0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 23rd of December, 2023 and produced on the lands of the Wongal and Wajuk people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, in our second part of the review of the Year in Politics, We look at the performances of the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition and what we can hope to see in 2024. I'm Eddie Djokovic, Editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Ghost of Christmas Yesterday. And the big announcement is that we've released our new book and the title is Rising Phoenix, Falling Shadows. And no, that's not the name of the Nang Lee Kung Fu movie. It's the name of our new book. And it goes through all the highs and lows of the year in politics. And it's a series of essays based on all the episodes of New Politics that have been released this year. It's available through online bookstores or you can purchase it through our website, newpolitics.com.au and it just means that if you want to know what happened with the Robo Debt Royal Commission you can just go to page 326 and read all about it or if you want to know what we said about media reforms or social housing or the economy or what we had to say about Gaza you can pick it up and find out and I think that it's a good book to read during the holiday period in my humble opinion and it's a good outline of all the political events of the year it's been a pleasure working on it it looks really great each time we do a book i think this
2: is the best one so far and i think that i can say the same thing this is the best one we've done so far and i want to thank you
1: so much for all your work on it eddie and i want to thank you too and i think this is a good way to support independent journalism david you and i get around three dollars for each copy that's sold and that's not the total that's for each of us so this is really good money and Our Patreon and Substack paid subscribers will receive a free PDF copy of our new book and we'll be sending that out to you very soon. And in our final review of the year, we look at the leaders of the two sides of politics. And first up, we look at the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And it's been a year of two halves where the first half of the year was travelling very well for Albanese. He was way ahead in the opinion polls, in his approval rating, preferred Prime Minister, and the Labor government got to a high of 61% of the two-party preferred voting. And the high watermark politically would have been the Aston by-election, where Labor won a seat off the Liberal Party and it was the first time a government has won a seat off the opposition in a by-election for over 100 years and the first time that Labor had actually won the seat since 1990 so that was a big win. Labor won Aston by securing swings in Liberal heartland booths, a
2: rare political feat lauded by the PM. On Saturday in Roeville and Monturna and Bayswater, people voted to support this positive agenda, they voted for fairness. We will never take the people of Ashton or the people of Australia for granted. There's genuine shock within Labor that the party was able to snatch this outer suburban mortgage belt electorate.
1: Mary Doyle gaining the seat of Ashton on her second attempt, allowing Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to vow that he'll be back in this seat several times before the next general federal election. It also had the spectre of the RoboDebt Royal Commission running in the background, and that was a reminder of the misdeeds of the previous government, and also the spectre of Scott Morrison languishing on the backbench, also as a reminder of the misdeeds of the previous government. There was also a budget surplus for the first time in 15 years. So politically, it was all looking very, very good for Anthony Albanese. And there were a few road bumps on the way, of course, at the beginning of the year. There were the problems with the Housing Australia Future Fund and managing the issue with the Australian Greens. There were all those issues with inflation, cost of living issues and all the consecutive interest rate rises. But it was all looking very, very good for Anthony Albanese and for the Labor government in the first half of the year. Yeah, he had a decent first half of
2: the year, no question.
1: Again, as Labour supporters will
2: point out, there's a lot of work to fix the problems of the last government. A lot of people who weren't necessarily Labour supporters but who voted Labour happily have expressed disappointment with how slowly things have gone. Now, I think I said last week that just because they've got a lot to do and some of it's going to take a while doesn't mean you can't hold them up to doing stuff they haven't done yet and ask for progress reports and hold them to account. But we also have to acknowledge that some things do take time and that even though governments can do a lot, sometimes it's best to focus on the two or three more urgent things, not important, but urgent things, And then move to the next things in that type of order. As you've pointed out, too, and I I agree, the government isn't also terribly good at the politics of a situation. They tend to be effective, but in terms of selling it, they don't do well. And even in the beginning of the year, this type of stuff was evident. And this might be what is the eventual downfall of the government, that they just won't be able to sell the politics. Going to the Kyle Sanderland's wedding was somewhat of a storm in a teacup. And I think we said that at the time, but we also said it it wasn't a good look. It, It showed a prime minister who was probably replaying a promise or a deal he'd made that Sanderlands would allow him on the show, but he had to come to the wedding or something like that. And, of course, you don't air this stuff because that makes it seem much worse than it even was. But it was certainly not the best look you could give. The whole Airbus Albo thing's ridiculous. Morrison went overseas far more than Anthony Albanese has. And often, too, Morrison's trips were private or semi-private. All of Anthony Albanese's overseas trips have been fairly important Australian government business, which is as it should be. Could some of them have been done over Skype? Maybe, sure. But often being in the same room with someone, as those of you who do endless Skype meetings can attest, sometimes it's just better to be in the same room. Again, first half of the year,
1: we found stuff to complain about, but on the whole, it was a good start to a a government. Oh, and of course, politics never stays still and everything is always on the move. The media did keep on angling for the end of the honeymoon story of the Labor government and with virtually every bit of small negative news, it was almost like a jilted lover. You know, is this the end of the honeymoon? Is is this the end or is that the end? What about this issue? What about that one? And we can say that it's well and truly over now, but that doesn't mean that it's the end of Anthony Albanese or the Labor government and... Problems and issues do accumulate for a leader and for a government over time, and there were all those objections to the costs of AUKUS, and that's around $380 billion over the next 30 years or so, so that's around $10 billion per year. And as you mentioned before, there was that concocted narrative about Airbus Albo, even though it was revealed that Anthony Albanese had travelled less than Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull or Scott Morrison in their first 18 months in office. Those other minor issues you mentioned before, the winning of coal sandy lands, and there was also other factors not doing enough on affordable housing. And all of these minor issues, or which seem to be minor at the time, they do accumulate until it develops into bigger issues. But I think that the biggest drag on Albanese's personal approvals seem to coincide with the drop in support for... The voice to parliament. And just because two events happen at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are linked or relate to each other. But I think in this case, they actually do relate to each other. And I think you do have to do something pretty special to end up being more unpopular than Peter Dutton, which is where Anthony Albanese is at the end of the year in opinion polling. But once you lose that approval, it's just really hard to get that back. And Scott Morrison lost a lot of support after disappearing to Hawaii during the peak of the bushfires in 2019-20 and he did get that back during the early stages of COVID and then lost it again. But that took a massive event to get his approval ratings back up again. But Albanese's biggest failure was definitely on the Voice to Parliament campaign. It was poorly managed. He did lose a lot of political capital without getting anything in return. So you'd have to say that that was a big loss. But I think the biggest success, if we are going to look at the losses, we've got to look at the successes as well. But I think the biggest success was getting the relationship with China back on track. Also, the other factor is trying to lower the noise in federal politics with the lowering of all the fear and division that we've seen too much of recently. And all of that fear and division returned just in time for the Voice to Parliament campaign. But reducing the noise and the volume of federal politics, so that we just focus on the issues and not the noise and the bluff and the bluster. I think that would be a good thing for politics if Anthony Albanese can achieve this. It became known as Albo's voice, which it never really was.
2: The voice came from a Liberal Party idea, and this is how destructive the party is under Dutton and under Morrison and under Abbott and under Turnbull. Although it's a bit different with Turnbull in that he had a feral party, but he's still responsible in that they would destroy it just because it had to be destroyed because any victory given to the other side was a loss. This is really poor politics. But yeah, the the, the voice became in the minds of people who didn't really look at it, Anthony Albanese's, and in the more extreme example. Anthony Albanese's plot to get the United Nations running Australia and to bring in the great replacement, and all of that, how shall I put this politely? All of that unsubstantiated uh, opinion seems to have been found in cattle fields.
1: And I'll leave it there. Well, there's actually a UN inspector knocking on my front door at the oh, moment. There you go. Well,
2: I'll see you later. Hopefully, they'll give us the same truck. <laughs> and that, I think helps with the unpopularity that people who were broadly positive or or slightly positive to Anthony Albanese saw either saw how he mishandled the voice and blamed him for that completely. And there's a lot of blame to go around. It's not just Anthony Albanese, let's let's be fair. Or didn't really want the voice and saw him as a way of, oh, well, look, it was racist and it was going to be divisive and it was going to be all of this type of stuff, which, of course, any sensible looking at showed that none of that was the case. The other thing, too, and this is a narrative that is half nonsense and half actually spot on, is that Anthony Albanese is a inner city Sydney leftist and is out of touch with the real Australia trademark and in a sense in terms of the government seems to be speaking to the educated inner city urban uh, type in language that that demographic reacts well to and if you look at the results of the voice the overwhelming yes vote tended to be inner urban leftish tertiary educated professionals the no vote tended to be everybody else, not tertiary educated, not in a city, rural or suburban or regional, and who didn't respond to the language of the argument to yes. Now, how you fix that in the long term you make university education free again and you let it all out to everybody etc etc or you change your messaging and you say as so, i know you'll note i didn't say dumb it down because I, I think that misses the point too you make sure that you're able to speak to all australians you're not going to get all of them agreeing with you and this is where peter dutton fails he doesn't actually speak to anyone outside of his own demographic of relatively far-right white guys who want Australia built in their own image not in the image of the community that lives here and the other quick point I'll make is that whereas Anthony Albanese is more unpopular than Peter Dutton at the moment he has been liked in the past and I think he will be liked again in the future if he can start to work things back. I know some people have said they'll never vote for him again. I'm not here to convince you otherwise. I'm, I'm just looking at it objectively. He doesn't have the deep loathing, the deep visceral loathing that Dutton seems to have in, in the community. And I'm not just talking about the left with Dutton, which you could understand. And there's a sense in which you can discount that dislike of Dutton in terms of electability. The left was never going to like him. But when you move towards the center, it doesn't diminish that much. There is a large proportion of people who just do not like Peter Dutton and will never like him.
1: Well, Machiavelli did say that for a leader, it's better to be loathed than to be liked or loved. So there's that issue as well.
2: Yeah, but Machiavelli never met Peter Dutton. <laughs> and and I think too, like a John Howard figure who was loathed by the left, but was still competent. You know, Howard made mistakes in his time, right up to the end, he made mistakes, but Parliament ran fairly well. There weren't as many scandals as as later, shorter-run tenured Prime Ministers had. He could communicate to a large proportion of the audience. Even those who didn't like him understood what he was saying and could engage with what he was saying. Dutton doesn't have these skills. Whether he has the time to learn them or not, and whether he can learn them or not, is a, a whole different issue. But that's the one advantage... Anthony Albanese has over Peter Dutton is that he may be deeply disliked and the numbers might be the same but the the percentage of the numbers who will never ever ever countenance Peter Dutton is larger than the numbers of people who will never ever ever countenance anthony albanese and that is not the best advantage to have but it's still an advantage and of course politicians work from advantage so i doubt he'll get to kevin rudd levels of popularity but those are dangerous anyway but i think he can probably get back to john howard levels of popularity which is enough as howard proved
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. Now you need the dark
3: Just as much as the sun But you're on forever
0: when you ink it in
1: and despite our predictions that Peter Dutton wouldn't be there at the end of this year, he's still there. The year's not over yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but his political fortunes have almost been the inverse of Anthony Albanese's fortunes. In the first half of the year, everything was going wrong for Peter Dutton and you could argue they probably still are, but he was trying to get some traction about Australia Day but found out that to rail against these sort of things is harder to do from opposition. There was also the by-election loss in Aston and it was pretty obvious that he wasn't expecting that at all. He was booked in to do all of the media interviews on the day after the by-election result, hoping to parade himself as the winner, but then having to appear and explain how badly the Liberal Party had performed and whether he'd have to resign as the leader and that was probably his low mark during the year. But there were also the ongoing issues with the RoboDebt Royal Commission, Scott Morrison still there on the backbench. But then along came the voice to Parliament, and Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party saw an opportunity to get back into the political game by destroying the voice to Parliament.
3: Well, the Prime Minister today has announced the date of the referendum, but he's not announced any of the detail. Uh, it's clear that uh, the Prime Minister now has six weeks to concentrate on providing the detail to the Australian public. Uh, You can't go to an election asking people to make the biggest change to our constitution in our nation's history without providing the detail and I think most Australians millions of Australians will want to know what it is they're being asked to vote for because it's not going to provide practical outcomes it is going to be Canberra based it's not going to provide the panacea that the Prime Minister is promising and It's without precedent that a Prime Minister would go to a constitutional referendum without providing the detail to Australians. There's been no constitutional conference, there's been no provision of detail in a completely unprecedented way. Uh, We know that this is divisive, we know that uh, it's unknown, Uh, we know that we've got a Prime Minister who just deliberately is withholding information from the Australian public and if that happens. People are being asked to vote for something that they don't truly understand. And I think the onus is on the Prime Minister over the course of this campaign to actually be honest with the Australian people, because at the moment he's not being honest.
1: So that actually did work as a strategy for them, but it's just a question of whether that will sustain him into the next year and beyond.
2: As I said last podcast, it was more that people wanted their biases confirmed rather than they came in not knowing which way to vote and ended up voting no. There were some people who did that, you know, and maybe some of our listeners did that, and that's fine. But I don't think that it was quite the victory that he thought. I think one of the things that is working in his favor is that Nobody went into politics thinking, I'm going to be the best leader of the opposition, I can't wait to be leader of the opposition. My ambition is to be leader of the opposition. It is really a stopgap job to prime minister. Now, we've had more leaders of the opposition than we've had prime ministers, because that's the nature of the job too. But the only time that job changes is one... When there's an election and the old leader of the opposition goes in to the prime ministership and then a new leader of the opposition from the other side goes in. Two, when the party seems to be in a winning position and somebody thinks that they can actually win from better. Or three, leaders of the opposition get sick and die or what have you. But generally when the party is in a very low chance of getting back at the next election, or when the party polls are down, but someone comes along who makes it seem that you could get into a winning position. So uh, Bill Hayden and Bob Hawke might be there, depending on your view of how well Bill Hayden was doing. Bob Hawke never became leader of the opposition to rebuild the party. And of course, you get people like that, Brendan Nelson in the Liberal Party, Simon Crean in the Labour Party, both of whom could have been very decent prime ministers. But had to burn a lot of their energy trying to rebuild parties that weren't working anymore
1: and this seems to be a replay of the template that Tony Abbott set up back in 2010 between the years of 2010 and 2013 and his process ended up getting the Liberal Party back into government and Tony Abbott becoming the Prime Minister but Peter Dutton is a spoiler and a disruptor in the same way that Tony Abbott was and he didn't have to wait until he got into opposition to do this. This is what he has always been like, whether he's in government or in opposition. And this is all based on the tactics of the extreme uh, Republican Party, that whole drain the swamp strategy. It's part Donald Trump. It's a little bit of Tea Party. It's got a little bit of Joe Bielki peterson from Queensland, and then it's got a little bit of... Peter Dutton's rancid characteristics as well. And it's to make as much noise as possible is to amplify non-existent issues, create trouble, spread disinformation. And it really worked well for him politically in the Voice to Parliament campaign. So I mentioned that it's politically it was a good strategy for him, but socially it was quite a destructive process to go through. And I think Peter Dutton's biggest achievement was to make Anthony Albanese even more unpopular than Peter Dutton, but. I'm not sure if that's because of Peter Dutton or Anthony Albanese's own work, but the role of the Prime Minister is to govern effectively, but also to put the leader of the opposition in their place. And I don't think that has actually happened. When Anthony Albanese first became the Prime Minister, he said that he wouldn't underestimate Peter Dutton. And... I think that he's probably overestimated him, given him too much respect and expected him to lead a constructive opposition, but from what we know of Peter Dunne historically, that was just never ever ever going to happen and there is still a belief that Peter Dutton won't be the leader of the opposition at the next election but many people predicted that he wouldn't be the leader of the opposition at the end of the year and you you mentioned before David there's still a couple of weeks to go but he's still there and he might end up being the big survivor of Australian politics but there's still a chance there but I just can't see this happening.
2: John Howard is a great hero. Lazarus with the triple bypass, as he himself described it. 1986, John Howard was finished. He was on the back benches... They felt that he'd do a couple of years, wait out his term and go into private enterprise. Thanks for your work, John. Sorry, it didn't work out.
1: And now he's got a statue at Parliament House. Exactly.
2: So for Peter Dutton, that is most likely a model that he would like to follow. The difference again, though, is, is that John Howard was able to have people who genuinely loved him who genuinely thought that he was hardly done by should have been prime minister in 87 or 87 incentivation. And when he became prime minister, thought that he was the best prime minister we ever had. I disagree before you all start typing away at your keyboard. Hello, everybody. But if you deny this type of stuff, you end up getting another Howard in because it's something that we don't like to acknowledge that these awful prime ministers get there for a reason. I think Dutton has been lucky in that there is really no front-running candidate to replace him. And I think even if there was... Nobody wants to build the Liberal Party up for the 2025 election just to lose again. I think if Dutton can win a seat or two at the next election, that might give him a further stay of execution. And the other thing too is that they bring in, and I can't think of any, uh, I'll call them celebrity conservative figures who might be able to come in from outside like Bob Hawke did and just swing in and and then win the election. I think really any potential prime minister, anyone with the ambitions for that, will be looking at 2027, 2028 is the next one, which isn't a long time historically, but if you're kind of 50-ish now, it makes you pushing 60 and the best years of your life have gone in opposition. So is it worth it? They say the best success is just hanging on and, you know, maybe that's all he needs to do. I still don't think he'll become prime minister in all probability. It's quite possible that the next election might wipe the Liberal Party out. Uh, I know they're on a bit of a high at the moment, but when you look at the poll numbers, and yes, poll numbers don't reflect anything at this point of the electoral cycle. Poll numbers don't reflect anything much but he's not heading towards a winning position. Labor is losing points, but the Liberal Party isn't really gaining them, and they must have noticed that.
0: This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can contribute and support new politics on Substack and Patreon.
1: And speaking of the opinion polls, the opinion polls ended with Labor ahead in the two-party preferred vote, and it's around the same as it was on election night in May 2022. And any government will tell you that if it's in the same position that it was at when it won the last election, they will take that result every day of the week. And That's a snapshot of where things stand at the moment and there were some anomalies at the 2022 federal election where Labor had a very low primary vote but still managed to win enough seats to form government and with a low primary vote, electoral results become very unpredictable they could actually get the same amount of votes at the next election but go into minority government or even lose office that's unlikely but it's always a possibility with a low primary vote
2: it's happened before
1: yeah well that's right and that's one thing that they will have to improve for next year i suspect that they've got people starting to work on
2: that now and new policies Again, they're doubling down, as the Americans say, on the tax cuts coming in in June. And Jim Chalmers gave a spirited yet rather empty response to why they're keeping them. And same with the Liberal Party too. I'm wondering if their very clever numbers people are working out how they can turn things around a little bit. Now, Labour would be very happy with the same figures. But what Needs to be factored in is: Will the teal movement start to move to safe labor seats? And if so, will the teal movement take safe labor seats? Teal movement got into the seats; that they did, and this is not a negative criticism at all, because they were what? Well, well, most importantly, more in line with what their electorates wanted for their communities. But also, don't forget, they got in because of their environmental genuine commitment to environmental. Care and environmental policy so whether that will fare as well in safe labour seats some it will any inner city safe labour seat it will absolutely fare well in and so anyone in a inner city labour seat might have to worry the greens are starting to flex their muscles a bit in similar seats
1: oh but i think even still labour is still well placed to either win the next election or hold a Minority government, and that's probably more likely based on what we know right now. Uh, minority government at the next election, the unpopularity of Anthony Albanese would be a worry, and I'm wondering what the Labor Party would start thinking about uh, generally if Albanese is considered to be a drag to the primary vote and to become more unpopular than Peter Dutton. I think that does take a special level of skill, and Peter Dutton is about as unpopular as herpes at the moment, and has been for some time, and. And sure, there's a whole lot of other issues going on. It could be a case where Anthony Albanese hasn't performed according to what was expected of a Labor Prime Minister and people might have been expecting the bells and whistles or a reinvention of Gough Whitlam, but they just haven't been getting it. And I think most people in the electorate probably wouldn't even know who Gough Whitlam was anyway. But Albanese has been in slow decline ever since the May 2022 election. It's been a very slow decline, very gradual though but it can't keep sliding forever. There has to be a halt in this decline, and the new year might provide the halt that they've been looking for, but the decline has to be reversed. Otherwise, things will just decline further for the government. They're not in a bad shape or a bad situation at the moment, but in politics, you generally want things to improve, not to get worse.
2: Very few people go in to make things worse, even if it's only for their own improvement. It The thing that we have to remember, too, is that you can't unseat a sitting Prime Minister easily in the Labour Party. The Rudd reforms made sure of this. Now, that's not to say that backdoor deals can't happen and, Anthony, you're going to have to resign to spend more time with your family type thing, but it's still very difficult. So those people saying, oh, he's going to be rolled, he's going to be rolled, show me the 75% of members who are going to force a vote and the reasons that they're going to have to give to force that vote. And the rules are similar in the Liberal Party too. They're slightly different for the opposition leader than for the prime minister. Now, both of these actually are good for stability. You just hope you don't get a total dropkick in who you can't get rid of. But again, the rules hopefully will make people aware of that when they start to think about who to make leader of the party so big numbers and of course if you're on 62 percent for liberal party or 71 percent for the labor party it's probably very frustrating but a line has to be drawn somewhere
1: And national politics will go through its usual process of not much happening during the holiday break. Everyone gets a rest and then they get back into it again in late January, and that's probably the case for most MPs and senators, but not for the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister has to be on call for all of that time, but 2024 is shaping up to be a big year. It is the last full year before the next election, which is due before May 2025, and there's also a possibility that the general election could happen in 2024 as well. That's unlikely, but it depends on quite a few issues going on. And we can probably predict now that most of the first half of the year is probably going to be taken up with discussions about the stage three tax cuts. And They're the ones that are going to be implemented at the end of June next year. And the economy is probably the most important issue in the lead up to an election campaign. But that's probably where most of the focus will be for the Labor government in 2024, just making sure that the economy is functioning as well as possible. And if they can't do this, the next election just might end up being quite a tricky one for them.
2: No election should be easy. No government should expect to walk back in no matter how well they've done. Elections should be about the will of the whole country, even when the country has polar opposites. Again, if we had a better press, that statement would need a lot less qualification. But we have what we have. And... A government should have to defend itself rigorously on its achievements, on what it's learned, on what it's going to do. It should an opposition, but it's taken as read that the opposition has to do that. So again, Labor should start looking at, and probably will, how is it going to maintain or even improve its position at the next election? And if it can't do that, look at why it can't do that. What are the weaknesses that are such that need to change? from that point of view, hopefully not from opposition, but from a slightly weakened
1: position. Oh, so I'd say that, you know, there probably will be a focus on the economy. And as Bill Clinton said in 1993, "Is the economy stupid. I'm not sure if it was Bill Clinton or actually one of his advisors, but never mind. But the idea will be to stabilise interest rates and then stabilise inflation, bring that down. My feeling is that they don't really have much of an option. If 2023 was the year of the focus on the voice to parliament, in 2024 the focus will have to be on the economy and governments should be able to do more than one thing at a time and they'll have to keep pushing in environmental issues and renewable energy and these are all the things that they've promised to do in the past and there's also a question of whether there will be any issues to arise from the National Anti-Corruption Commission and They've already had 44 referrals, and they're just all the ones that we know of, including one from Senator Linda Reynolds, who has just referred the $2.4 million compensation payment to Brittany Higgins, to the Anti-Corruption Commission. and. The NAC has been in existence for about five months. So I'm just wondering whether they'll release any material that could be politically explosive as well. So there's the economy, there's renewable energy, there's environmental issues, there's the possibility of corruption issues coming into the fore as well from the Anti-Corruption Commission. So I think 2024 should be quite an exciting year in politics. It's always unpredictable what will happen, but I think there's a lot of things that will happen over the next year. So that's it for new politics, not just for this episode, but for the whole year. It's been a year of highs and lows, but every year is different in politics. And this year has been different in so many different ways. And we'll be having a break for most of January and we will be back refreshed for 2024. So, David, it's been a pleasure working with you this year. It's been a pleasure creating the weekly podcast for our audience. Maybe not so much on late Friday night, but it's all good. We get the good feedback, we get the bad feedback that makes your ears burn. But it's all for the sake of creating a healthy, independent media sector in Australia. And we hope that we are contributing to that. And we do wish all the best to our audience over the holiday period and to our subscribers on Patreon and Substack. Thanks for all of your support and the Christmas and holiday period is always a good time to relax but it's also a time to think about all the people who are less well off or doing it tough for whatever reason, whether it's here in Australia or anywhere else in the world. But whatever you end up doing, enjoy the break and we'll see you again next year.
2: I'd just like to thank you too, Eddie. It's always been one of the highlights of the week to do the podcast with you. I thoroughly enjoy it. And yeah, I I hope that in some small way we've made the media landscape a little better. I'm actually quite proud to be part of the independent media crowd. I don't know very many people outside, but I know that nearly everyone in it is trying their little bit just to make sure that there's information out there that they feel people should know. And that's an exciting thing. As to the listeners, thank you so much for your support over the years. I love the feedback. Positive feedback is the best. I love negative feedback when it's constructive. And you've got to take the good with the bad. Name calling's always fun, of course. But even so, people have listened and they've engaged. And that's the main thing. It's engagement and it's engagement with politics. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And have a great Christmas and holiday season. And we'll see you next year.